Hello and welcome to another episode of All Aboard Golf. I'm here in person with my co-host Drew Warner. Drew, welcome. Caleb, thank you. Fantastic to be here and uh, great to be recording with you in person for the first time since Indeed. getting started. So excited to be here. We are uh, in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where I live. Uh, and uh, ironically, uh, as we're getting ready to preview the Ryder Cup, uh, Massachusetts, home of the first ever Ryder Cup match. A little fun fact to to start the podcast. But Drew, like I mentioned, we're we're previewing the 2023 Ryder Cup. It's going to be held in Marco Simone uh, the last weekend in September. And uh, let's get right into it. Of course, yeah. I think the first place to naturally start is, you know, what is the Ryder Cup? Um, and again, part of what we want to do here is, is educate everyone on on what these events are, why they're important, where they fit into the landscape of golf. And I think the Ryder Cup is an, an integral part of the fabric of professional golf and, and global golf. So uh, just what it is at a high level, uh, it is a match that happens every other year, an exhibition match between a team of the 12 best players from the United States versus the team of the 12 best players from continental Europe. So all the countries that make up continental Europe. Um, the event is contested, like I mentioned, every two years, and each Ryder Cup is held uh, in the territory of each of the teams. So, you know, in 2021, the Ryder Cup was in the United States and Wisconsin. Like Caleb mentioned, the 2023 Ryder Cup will be held in Marco Simone, which is in Italy. Um, and so, you know, it's gone back and forth and, you know, you'll go in the U.S. one time and then back over in continental Europe and another country and they go all over continental Europe another time. But uh, this is the first Ryder Cup that's been held in Italy, so it should be a, a bit of a groundbreaking one for sure. Yeah, and speaking of Ryder Cups in Europe, too, it's is in in recent history, it's been a, a big struggle for the U.S. It's one of the big storylines coming into this Ryder Cup. Um, home course advantage has been a, a real a real thing in the last uh, say thirty years. Uh, it's been a pretty rare occurrence that uh, a road team has been able to steal steal a, a Ryder Cup from from the hosting side and the u.s is coming into this Ryder cup as the clear favorites in terms of talent um but home course advantage is still a, a incredible factor that i think will be a, a evening in terms of how it actually will, will play out uh come next weekend but let's let's talk about some of the history of the Ryder cup before we get into this year's this year's match um Ryder Cup was started by a man named Sam Ryder. That's uh, why the event is uh, called the Ryder Cup, bears his name. Like we mentioned before, the first ever Ryder Cup match was held in, in Massachusetts at Worcester Country Club, not far uh, not far from Boston. And uh, <clears throat> Sam Ryder was, was born in 1858. So this is a very, very old event, has lots of, of rich and deep history. Uh, Drew, do you have uh, some more details about that that first? Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so the first Ryder Cup was in 1927, but I'm actually going to go back a little bit further. Uh, un unofficially, the first Ryder Cup was held in 1926, the year before, uh, and there's even some history that traces the Ryder Cup roots back to 1920 or 1921, uh, which is interesting. And so, basically, in 1921 you know, American golf kind of collectively decided that not enough of their players were playing in the open championship, which takes place in the UK every year. And so they basically developed a open championship sponsorship fund. A couple of businessmen in America got together to set this thing up to send 12 players, which ironically is the number of players on each Ryder cup team over to the UK to prepare for the event, play a warm up tournament against some European players 
and then ultimately play in the Open Championship. And so, uh, as you can see, you know, going over there early, playing in these matches, getting acquainted with the conditions and everything that's different over in Europe, um, as well as playing against the European players, kind of the breeding ground for what ultimately became the Ryder Cup, right? So um, there were definitely visages of the Cup before it actually became an official event. And then 1926 was the first, uh, not official, but it was the first formalized cup in the sense that, you know, they kind of had captains and they had, you know, teams set up and they had a qualification process. And that was kind of like the unofficial start to the Ryder Cup, sort of as we know it today, the closest approximation to what we know as the Ryder Cup today. And then the event was, you know, formally standardized as kind of the Ryder Cup, you know, bearing the name of Samuel Ryder, who was an English businessman, like Caleb mentioned, um, in 1927. So there were some publications apparently in Europe calling it the Ryder Cup before that, because Samuel Ryder was big and kind of supporting these matches and being invested in them even before the official beginning in 1927. Um, so the name was unofficially bestowed before it became a real thing. But the point is the Ryder Cup's got a lot of history. Um, and uh, honestly, they probably could have made it official a few years sooner. So <laughs> definitely. Fun fact about the the trophy. It uh, was commissioned for 250 pounds. <laughs> And is uh, 17 inches tall and weighs four pounds. So okay, is a is a big trophy, and uh, uh, not only in in physical size, but it's a important one in golf. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've been talking a lot in the podcast this year about the money in golf and and live golf and the PJ Tour and and how that has affected the golf landscape in the last year and a half. And the Ryder Cup seems to be one of the last remaining vestiges of pure golf not for this not for the money players don't get paid to play in this event but it's still to the players if you if you ask a lot of them might be the, the, the most important event that they play in this year um it was right up there with the majors um so it's, it's really cool uh as a fan to watch uh, an event that still really is about the golf yeah i, I couldn't agree more you know I, I do think in a lot of ways you know whether you're watching college golf or you're watching, you know, the Walker cup, which is the amateur version of the Ryder cup, or, you know, Caleb and I've been watching a lot of the Solheim cup the last couple of days over in Spain. There's something different about watching team golf. Um, and there's something, you know, natural and pure and fun about watching golf played at a high level. Um, and it doesn't feel, I don't want to say tainted by money because I don't think money in golf is necessarily always a problem, uh, but there's something something cool about seeing these players play for nothing other than national pride and the chance to win as a team. Um, and I think that really bears itself out in Ryder Cup celebrations <laughs> over the years. I think I've gotten a lot of joy recently out of going back and watching some of the celebrations from winning teams or celebrations when a big putt is made in years past in the Ryder Cup. And, you know, I, Caleb, I watched the video of Bryson DeChambeau in 2021 Ryder Cup driving the green on the first hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a huge moment. Yeah, raising his putter as he kind of walked off the tee box. And the right in crowd, front of Sergio. Yeah, and the crowd went absolutely nuts right in front of Sergio Garcia. Um, and again, like, I'm not really a Bryson DeChambeau fan, to be honest with you, but I think back in that moment and I'm like, that was a really great, awesome Ryder Cup moment that made me like Bryson, that made him appear likable in that moment. Again, not a lot of likable moments since then, but that was a great one for him, right? And so I think the Ryder Cup has this power to engage the passion of players in a way you don't see from them on a regular basis. And it can kind of create heroes out of villains for you, if you will. And as well as like, you know, obviously we're American, we're rooting for the American side. It, it can create villains out of Europeans a little bit too that I might normally root for on a week to week basis. Right. So rooting interests change a little bit. 
Um, I think the Ryder Cup is probably the only time I ever rooted for Patrick Reed so hard. Um, I'll never forget rooting him on to beat Rory in 2016, which I can't imagine myself doing on a weekly basis. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and definitely goes the other way around too. Think of uh, Victor Hovland, just the most likable guy in golf, maybe. Um, and we're going to be rooting against him so hard, so hard <laughs> next week. To kind of wrap up the story about um, Sam Ryder, he he played an active role in in all the matches through uh, through 1935, both as an organizer and the financial broker. Uh, he he died in 1936 in in London. So Sam Sam Ryder, a big uh, instrumental part in 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 the Ryder Cup. Of course, you know, absolutely. Um, and just to touch a bit more kind of moving forward from Sam Ryder, who kind of got the ball rolling and all this, just to talk more about some of the changes to the Cup over the years and how it works. Um, obviously, the founding was in 1927 officially. Uh, the Ryder Cup then was the United States, not versus Europe, but it was versus just the team from Great Britain. Like I said, it was players going over to the UK to prepare for the Open Championship. It started all of this. Um, so basically from 1927 through 1961, or excuse me, through 1973, it was just the U.S. versus a team from Great Britain. So the 12 best from each country. And Caleb, you mentioned home field, home course advantage. The first, the early years of the Ryder Cup, very much true as well. I mean, it's been a thing that's been pronounced in the last, you know, two to three decades in modern times. Um, but going back 100 years, you still kind of saw the same thing. Or the first few Ryder Cups were definitely won on by whoever the home team was. And so it's something that, you know, we've seen a historical precedent for, but uh, initially the cup was played for 12 points and we'll get into kind of the format of the Ryder cup in a sec too, but basically each match is worth a point. Um, and the Ryder cup was contested over 12 points and amongst the 12 players on each team uh, in 1961, they changed the format a little bit and it was ultimately expanded to be played for 24 points. So there were 24 points available between the two teams. You know, if one team earned a majority of those points, they won the Ryder cup. Uh, in 1973, to make it a little more competitive, because the U.S. had been winning the far majority of Ryder Cups at that point in time, uh, Ireland was added to the Great Britain team. So the team was known as GB&I, Great Britain and Ireland, and it was GB&I versus the U.S. Uh, and that's actually how the Walker Cup, which I mentioned before, is the amateur version of the Cup, is set up still. So we got GB&I versus the U.S. Um, but in 1979, still struggling with kind of the competitive balance of the Ryder Cup, wanting to make it an interesting competition that fans would enjoy watching that was competitive. Um, Continental Europe was added to the Cup, and the format was changed again to its current uh, kind of point total of 28 points that teams are ultimately playing for in the Cup itself. So in 1979, the first the first Ryder Cup was at the Greenbrier that allowed Continental European players to play. So that obviously opened up a host of additional countries, um, I mean, today, I think of players like John Rahm or Sepp Straka uh, or Victor Hovland are players that would not have been eligible for the Ryder Cup if it was still Great Britain and Ireland. So some big names in there now um, as a result of that kind of that kind of change. But anyway, um, 28 points available from 1979 onward. And since then, it's been Europe and the U.S. Um, since then, it's been much more competitively balanced. Uh, European team has emerged in recent decades as a force. Um, and has outplayed the U.S., frankly, over the last two to three decades, for sure. Like, we'll, we'll talk about it, but the U.S. has not won a Ryder Cup in Europe in 30 years. It was 1993, last time that happened. Um, but still, considering kind of the early domination of the Cup by the United States team, the overall record of the Ryder Cup is still 27 to 14 in favor of the United States. Again, I don't think that is representative of how competitive and how closely contested this event actually is. Caleb, anything to add on, on that stuff? 
I do want to add one one uh, fun fact. You mentioned in 1979, the current format. Um, Ten years earlier is when we got the the current team size was increased from from ten to twelve, and it's been that way ever since. Awesome, perfect. Um, well, Caleb, I think it's time for us to you know turn our attention. We've established what the Ryder Cup is, where it's ha- where it's being played this year, and Marco Simone. You know what the historical context for the competitive nature of the Cup is. I think it's time to talk about format. How is this thing actually going to be scored? How is it set up? How many days is the event? How are points earned? So I don't know if you want to take a, take a stab at talking us through um, the f- different formats they play and, and how how points are earned in this event. Yeah, so the Ryder Cup is played over three days. It'll be a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And there are five sessions. There are two sessions on Friday, two sessions on Saturday, and then one session on Sunday. The The Friday and Saturday sessions are uh, group, groupings of, of two players that are paired together, uh, and they play against uh, two players from the other team. So two United States players versus two European players. And they have, they have two different ways that they can play a match. The first is foursomes. So uh, that means that there are only two balls in play. Uh, they they take turns. Uh, like if Drew and I were on uh, the U.S. team and we were paired together, Drew would hit the tee shot, and then wherever Drew's ball landed, I would play the next shot from, from there. Uh, the other uh, format is called four ball, uh, which Drew and I would both hit a tee shot. We both played the hole, and whichever of us had the better score – that would be our team score for the hole. And if it was better than the European score for that hole, then Drew and I would get a point uh, for, for that hole. Um, and Caleb, I've, I've found that there's always a bit of confusion about the foursomes and four balls names, especially amongst Americans. Uh, ways that we commonly refer to those are alternate shot and best ball, right? So yep. like if you, if you heard alternate shot or best ball, that's exactly what, what foursomes and four balls are respectively. Uh, they just need to be a little bit fancier for the Ryder Cup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so same same format, uh, Friday and Saturday, you have an afternoon session and a morning session. Those will be uh, different formats. So if you do foursomes in the afternoon, you do four ball in the morning. Uh, and then same thing on Saturday. And then on Sunday, all 12 players will play uh, a singles match. So there's only um, there's only a, a, there's not enough spots in each of the sessions for all 12 players to play. Uh, there's only uh, eight players play in the morning, eight players play in the afternoon. So you'll have a lot of players that play both in the morning and the afternoon. Um, and some players might not play at all one day. They might play in both matches the next day. The, it's, it's kind of a strategy to, to figure out when you're going to play certain players, give everyone rest. Uh, if, if one player is going to play all five matches, uh, so, you know, the captain strategy comes into play there. But on Sunday, everyone plays. Um, and it's just one versus one. Uh, Drew is on Team Europe. I was on Team US. We would It would, it would be just him and I on, on the hole. And you know we would play an 18-hole match play match. And whoever won the match uh, gets point. If you uh, tie the match, you each get half a point. Um, and that's how the point system works. And there, are, like there are twenty-eight total matches, so there are twenty-eight total points available. Uh, and the first team to get above fourteen, which is the tie-breaking threshold, wins the cup. And one thing I'd add, just to that at the end, uh, one thing that's unique about the Ryder Cup is. You can tie, right? I mean, there's 28 points available. So there's can be a situation where, you know, it's 14 to 14. And if that happens, 
the Ryder Cup goes back to the team that had won the previous time. So the U.S. won in 2021. If this Ryder Cup ends in a 14-14 tie, the United States retains the cup and it comes back to us. Which kind of makes it that much more incredible that the away teams have had such a hard time winning the cup because it, it when you just look at the points, if you don't factor in, in the quality of the players or the uh, location advantage, it's easier for that that road team that just won the cup in their home country or uh, continent to win because all they have to do is tie. Like if, if Europe wants to get the cup, they have to outright beat the U.S. in points. Um, so that just underscores a little bit how how hard it is to actually win in the territory uh, in the in the opposing territory. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, one one thing I just add, kind of for some context, and what you were talking about strategy with, you know, when players play, you know, and and uh, you know how you decide who to play and who to rest. You know, they look at tons of data to make these decisions, um, and they've got access to all kinds of data that we would never have access to. Um, but one thing to think about this week, if you're surprised that players are not playing as much as you might expect them to, like you might expect Roy McIlroy, for example, to play all five matches. And he might, but he might not because apparently Marco Simone is kind of on a hillside, right? And it, for all, all accounts are that it's a very, very difficult walk. Um, and it's just a, a course that really tires you out a lot. So in, in the last Ryder Cup in Whistling Straits in Wisconsin, we saw a few players play all five matches. I would say it's relatively unlikely um, that we see more than one or two players at most play five matches yeah. and maybe, maybe none at all. So, yeah, uh, you know, n- not just the strategy as far as who's playing well, who's not, you know, who pairs well with this person, who doesn't pair well with this person. I think the course is probably m- even more of the strategy now or even more of a part of the strategy for a captain to make their choices um, than it would be in years past. So. Yeah, definitely. And even you know, let's talk about course strategy a little bit. Not only do uh, you have the home fans, uh, creating a, a raucous environment. Uh, but part of the advantage is that the home team gets to set up the course however they would like, which means they get to control the length of the rough, the width of the fairways, all of these different little factors that play a significant role in how the course favors types of players. And um, this is especially uh, more important when you really did have a different style of play in Europe with European players than you did with American players. Um, It's a little bit less important now because you have most of the European players on the, on the European Ryder cup team play most of their golf in the United States. So they're right. They're more accustomed to playing us golf than they are uh, European golf. uh, At this point, players like Rory and Rahm and, um, but not necessarily the case with players like Bob McIntyre, for example, who exactly. plays the vast majority of his golf on the DP World Tour. Yeah, and and you know, Caleb, I, I agree that the the stratification between European and American playing styles has has you know narrowed mm-hmm. over the years for sure. That said, I, I think there are still modern examples of of you know the little advantages that teams will go to from a course setup perspective to try and give themselves an advantage based on the personnel that are on their team, right? So in 2018, I think of that one all the time, right? That was the Ryder Cup at Le Golf National, which is in Paris, France. Uh, and that course is super tight. There's tons of water. You can't hit a lot of drivers. And basically what the European team did, the guys that qualified all tend to be very accurate off the tee. 
And they picked players as, as, as their captain's picks, which we'll get to in a moment, that are also very accurate off the tee. And then they grew the rough up on that course. They took driver out of the hands of a lot of the American players because the Americans hit it longer. But the Europeans hit it shorter, but they hit it much straighter. Uh, and they were able to take advantage of that to absolutely route the U.S. I think it was 17 and a half to 10 and a half in that Ryder Cup, right? And so there are things you can do based on your personnel to kind of mitigate that and give your team the chance to show off their strengths a little bit more. Because the very the, the very next Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits, the U.S. set it up pretty easy. Not a lot of rough, a lot of pins in the middle of the greens. You know, they, they allowed their players to hit a lot of drivers and basically, you know, did exactly what the Europeans did to them in reverse in 2018, Right. Um, and so that, that was interesting. I hear a lot of different things about Marco Simone. I, I don't know that it, actually statistically the European team is less accurate off the tee than the U S team this time around. Mm-hmm. So very different personnel on the European side, very different personnel on the American side than there was back in 2018 as well. So, uh, I've heard Roy McElroy talk a bit about wanting to make it a bit of a long iron contest, which I think is interesting given that I, I, I think of that as a strength for the U S team historically. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at the European team and they've got some real studs in that department as well. So, um, w- we'll see how the course plays. I'm, I'm very curious to see who this actually favors. Cause I think this is probably a Ryder cup where the teams are most similar as far as skill set than we've had in recent years. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, <clears throat> I think a long iron contest, well, it might favor uh, the U.S. as a team, definitely would favor a player like Rory, uh, who relatively so is, is not uh, strong with the wedges. And I'm I'm looking at players like John Rahm, Tommy Fleetwood, Ludwig Aberg, good iron players, good long Great iron players, players. Yeah. right? And I don't think we'll talk about it when we get into the teams, right? But this Ryder Cup is certainly a bit of a changing of the guard for Europe. There's a lot of players that were Ryder Cup legends that have kind of rolled off the team, whether it's due to age or form or live golf. Um, and now we've got a new new team, a lot of younger players, very different makeup on the European side. Um, and I think maybe they have different strengths, given that most of them grew up playing their golf in the U.S., like you mentioned, as opposed to some of the older guys that have just rolled off, did play most of their golf in Europe as young professionals. So I think uh, it's a changing the guard for Europe, and I think the styles match up a lot more than we've seen in years past. So yeah, definitely it has all the makings of a good of a good Ryder Cup. Um, we're already getting into it, Caleb. Should we should we talk teams a little bit? Talk, yeah, we definitely should talk about how you get on the Ryder Cup team, who makes up the team, and then ultimately, uh, you know, which players qualified this year and who who we should be on the lookout for. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about it. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll talk a bit about qualification for the Ryder Cup. Um, so like Caleb mentioned, uh, the U S and the European team kind of have some discretion separately as far as course setup. It's also the same way with qualification. So the U S is Ryder cup qualification process. It's managed by the PGA of America, uh, which is not the PGA tour, not associated with the PGA tour. Uh, it's the same organization that, uh, administers and runs the PGA championship with a major championship that happens in May every year. Um, and the PGA champions, the PGA of America, excuse me, uh, runs a qualification process that lasts. It's like a two-year window, essentially, because there's two years between each Ryder Cup. So uh, back in 2022, at the very start of the year, the U.S. Ryder Cup qualification process starts. And basically the way it works is it takes PGA Tour events um, from that period of time and allocates a certain number of points um, to each dollar earned in PGA Tour events, you know, in that time period. So it's like like a dollar a dollar is like a thousand points or however they say, I can't remember exactly what the conversion is, but they have a point system um, for regular events. And then 
bigger events like major championships or what were formerly known as WGCs. And now they're, you know, signature events, is I guess the new name for the PGA tours, bigger events um, are they're weighted kind of proportionally to the strength of field. Right. And there's some complaints about this. I don't think the process is perfect. There are some events that I think are probably overweighted, but as far as how it, how, as how it actually works, um, you know, you play well in big events, you're going to accumulate a lot of Ryder Cup points and give yourself the chance to get into the top six. And so the top six after that two year window, are the ones who automatically qualify for the U.S. Ryder Cup team uh, based on their performance on the PGA Tour. So uh, the qualification period, again, started in January 2022, and it ended, I guess, in August of 2023, right after the BMW Championship, which is the second of the three playoff events in the PGA Tour. So that was a period of time players had to officially automatically qualify for the team. Um, if you win a big event in that time period, it's very likely that you get on the team, um, just about the way the way points are weighted. If you win a major championship, you're likely to be on the team, um, especially in the second year, especially the, because the, the second year points are weighted more heavily. Uh, the, the closer you get to the Ryder Cup, the points get weighted uh, a little more. Exactly. So if I won the Masters in 2022 and then missed like Scotty Sc- Scheffler. Yeah, like Scotty Scheffler. I mean, obviously not, not a Scotty good example. Won, Scotty won so many points that he yeah. he he. I think he doubled the, the Wyndham Clark, who was second place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if I theoretically won the Masters and missed every single cut for like the next year and a half after that, there's a very good chance I wouldn't be on the team from an automatic qualification perspective, right? Um, so you still have to play well and continue that. But if you win, let's say, you know, the Open Championship, which Brian Harmon did this year, right before Ryder Cup qualification period ended, the chances you get in are very, very high. And Brian Harmon went from like, 16th or something on the points list to third after winning the open championship and finished third in the overall standings. Right. So winning a major in, in the year of the cup can be, can be very big for the point system on the U S side and the European side. But uh, anyway, the European side does it a little bit differently. So they still have six automatic qualifiers, just like the U S but the way they get to them is a bit different. So they've actually got two points lists that sort of run concurrently uh, and they're typically shorter time periods as well. So the European team has the European points list and the world's point and the world points list. The European points list is designed to reward players who play on the DP World Tour, formerly known as the European Tour, um, and give them the opportunity to earn their way onto the Ryder Cup team. Because every European member of the team has to have a um, European Tour or DP World Tour membership, right? So this is designed to reward those players who not just have a membership but play mostly on the PGA Tour, but have a membership and play regularly on the DP World Tour. Um, so the way that list works is it basically comprises all of the DP World Tour events during that qualification period, which for Europe actually started last fall. So it's about a year long period. It's a little bit, they, they measured a little bit differently um, in a way that probably makes a little more sense in some ways. Um, and, you know, they get additional weighted points for major championships for the DP World Tour championship, you know, for WGC and Rolex series, which are their version of, you know, signature elevated events. So kind of a similar process, but just for the DP World Tour guys. And then there is the world points list, uh, which basically takes into account all of the official world golf ranking events that their players play in over the course of the qualification period. And again, they weight them based on the kind of strength of field, importance of the event, et cetera. Um, and that's really designed to help out players like a Tyrrell Hatton or a Tommy Fleetwood uh, or even like a Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, players that you know play most of their week-to-week golf on the PGA Tour uh, as opposed to being in Europe most of the time. So they want to get the best European players, but they're not all playing in Europe necessarily. So they have to find ways to... Uh, give access to the cup for those players. So you get three players from the European points list. You get three players from the uh, European points list. 
Anything to add on that, Caleb, as far as automatic qualification? Yeah, one thing, one thing to add. So, um, you know, what if, what if uh, Rory is the number one on the world points list, but he's also number one on the European points list? Are there only five players that automatically qualify? No. So what they do is they take the top three from the European points list. Those players automatically qualify, only the top three. And then they go over to the world points list and they take the top three players who haven't already qualified via the European points list. And those players will automatically qualify. So you, no matter who is on which list, the, there will be six automatic qualifiers for Europe. So for example, the way that worked this year, Rory, Rom, and uh, I mean, uh, Robert McIntyre were the top three European points uh, list, uh, which is impressive from Roy and Ron because they play most of their golf on the PJ Tour. So then they go over to the World Points list, and Rory and Rom are also the top two for the World Points list. So then they take three, four, and five from the World Points list to, to uh, round out their their six, and that was Victor Hovland, Tyrrell Hatton, and Matt, Matt uh, Fitzpatrick. Right. Right. So those are the automatic qualifiers on the European side. And then the automatic qualifiers on the United States side were Scotty Scheffler, like we just mentioned, Wyndham Clark, who won the U.S. Open this year, Brian Harmon, um, absolute dog, who won the Open Championship this year, uh, Patrick Cantlay, Max Homa, and Xander Shoffley. So those are the players, the top six on the U.S. side of things. So we've established those members of the team's and then, Caleb, let's, let's talk a bit about captain's picks. So, you know, the way the Ryder Cup is set up, you know, there are, like I mentioned, 12 players from each team. There are also captains for each team. And typically those captains tend to be former Ryder Cup players themselves. So uh, this year's U.S. captain is Zach Johnson, who played on a number of U.S. Ryder Cup teams over the years. Uh, Luke Donald is the European captain. Um, captains do have a bit of discretion as to who ultimately gets on their team. Uh, and his, Final discretion. Final discretion, right? And... By that, I mean they have the opportunity to make an individual choice. And then, again, they consult with assistant captains, vice captains, and players, right? But the, And consultants. And consultants and data, data folks and whatever. There's, there's a whole host of people that actually talk to to make these decisions. But the captain, in the end, has the final say on the players to add to fill out the remainder of their team room for the cup. Um, this part of the process has changed a good bit in recent years. Historically... There were nine automatic qualifiers to the Ryder Cup, and the captains had three picks. Most of my lifetime, that's how it's been. Um, because of the weird situation with COVID delaying what was supposed to be the 2020 Ryder Cup to 2021, which is why we switched from even years to odd years, um, there was basically the idea added that like there wasn't a full qualification period. Not everyone was playing every event because of COVID. So the U.S. team, in preparation for the 2021 Cup, shortened it to six automatic qualifiers and added six captain's picks. So the captain had a little bit more discretion to choose players because they weren't necessarily confident that the points would reflect the way things actually shaked out because it was a weird shortened season in 2020. No one played every event. Some players didn't come back for a while. They, they wanted to standardize the process and give the captain more latitude to make sure the right players were on that team. Right. What right. if you missed a month for COVID? Right. Again, if you if you tested positive, you're not playing events, right? Yep. So they had to come up with control. Europe did not make that change in 2021. So they still had nine automatic qualifiers and just three captain's picks. 
Um, the U.S. won the Ryder Cup 19 to 9, which was a record margin of victory. So maybe that prompted Europe to make the same change this year. So this is the first time that Europe has also had six captain's picks in addition to the six automatic qualifiers, the same way the U.S. did last time. I kind of like that it gives them the optionality, you know, to like yeah. to fill out their team. I think it gives them the opportunity to create a more cohesive team, you know, understand team chemistry between players a little bit, um, team dynamics. Because a lot of times you can get guys who qualify that like maybe won't be a fit in the team room, right? Um, Or maybe, you know, won't pair well with other players, even if they had a good individual season. And I think that's one of the things like with the picks, and we'll talk about this, like the Ryder Cup is often seen as like, you should just pick the 12 best players who had the most points that year. And that's exactly what you should do. And it was seen that way, especially on the U S side for a long time. But I think the strategy around captain's picks has evolved a little bit to, to an understanding of, of what I think the Europeans have known for a long time. Like, you know, what is more important necessarily than even current form and, or, you know, being the top 12, one of the top 12 point getters in that given season is you have to build a team room that gets along well and feels like they can, you know, get together come together, play some good golf and really know and enjoy their time together. Um, and I think we saw that with the U S team for the first time in a while in 2021. Um, and so I think like, you know, Europe understands that the U S understands that. And I think si- having six captain's picks facilitates that process a little bit easier than being hamstrung. To, like you have to kind of pick guys, you know, 10, 11, 12, if you only had nine before. Yeah. Um, anyway, you want to talk a bit about who the captain's picks are for this, this Ryder cap, Caleb, you want to start with the Americans? Yeah, I'll start with the Americans. So um, let's just go right down the list. We have Brooks Kepka, Jordan Spieth, Colin Morikawa, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, and Sam Burns. And Drew, there was uh, a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion leading up to Zach Johnson's announcement about who the final two spots uh, in the captain's pay. Everyone was pretty sure about the first four, uh, but the final two spots were – somewhat controversial and I think the controversy has ironed out a little bit um now that Justin Thomas played really well in uh in the Fortnite (laughs) it uh (laughs) bought Zach Thomas a little bit of uh grace with some of his skeptics um but I think Sam Burns was a a surprise pick even more so than than Justin Thomas um one of the assistant captains had come out in July and said that uh, Cam Young was going to be uh, a lot to make to make the team. Um, which Drew, we can we can talk about uh, assistant captains running the rounds, but uh, <laughs> that turned out to, <laughs> to to not be such a great thing to say because he wasn't the one making the decision, and and Zach ended up making a different decision after the second half of the season played out after those comments were made. Um, I, I think Sam Burns is a good choice, and like you said, Drew. A lot of this comes down to how you pair with another player because four out of the five formats are you pairing with uh, a different player and your playing styles have to come together. If, if two players are really good at driving the ball and really good at putting, but both of them are terrible with their irons, you would never pair them together for alternate shot because you know, they both can get off the tee, but then once they get in the fairway, their fairways, their irons are always going to be uh, questionable. So you want to pair someone, you know, I have really good irons. You have a really good driver. That's a great for alternate I, shot. I think it's backwards to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call my driver really good. 
Well, maybe we wouldn't be so great for alternate shots then. <laughs> uh, but that's that's one of the reasons that that Sam Burns I think was picked is that he his game and his personality fits really well with a player like Scotty Scheffler and they played together in the President's Cup. Yeah, you know, again, I I do think there was a lot more controversy surrounding the picks. I think you know Fred Couples' comments about Cam Young being on the team made that more controversial, right? Like if I had no expectation that he'd be on the team, which I wouldn't have had if he hadn't said that, I think it would have been less of a big deal that Sam Burns was picked over him. It, it you know, it does make you wonder. Again, they're looking at data that we don't have access to, right? So I'm I'm assuming this decision was made with data and models and true course fit and personality fit and everything made in, in made in mind. Uh, Cam Young, who missed out, does strike me as a player that would have fit Marcus Simone really well. He's a fantastic driver of the golf ball and that, you know, this course disproportionately awards rewards long and straight tee balls. Um, but it makes me wonder if it's a team room thing. Like, uh, you know, I, I've never heard anything bad about Cam Young, but it does seem like Sam Burns is kind of, you know, a, a, maybe a better personality fit in the locker room as far as like who he's friends with and 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 that you know and that, from that perspective in the team room, right? Which is important as far as like, creating a cohesive team identity. So, part of me wonders how much of that that decision between Burns and Kim Young ultimately came down to that. Um, and I think JT was picked for a similar reason. You know, fantastic Ryder Cup history, but I think it's less about Ryder Cup history in this in this event in some ways because some players have been really good on the road and really bad at home and vice versa. Um, and I think a lot of it's just about, you know, who, who does your opponent least want to see? Um, and I think Cam Young and Sam Burns probably inspire the same amount of fear amongst the Europeans. Like, so in that, in that case, I'm a little bit different, you know, indifferent between picking one over the other. Um, but I think like a Justin Thomas compared to like a Keegan Bradley, for example, right. Um, or, you know, another player that just missed out, you know, I, as a European player, I'd be much more nervous to see Justin Thomas lining up uh, across from him in the first tee. And I think that's a lot of the reason why he was picked. Because he's got the X factor. He's got the intangible. And when he's playing well, he's one of the best players in the world. So um, they made their decisions. And at first, I think I was a bit surprised. But ultimately, I uh, I do think they're the right decisions. Um, and I think they are decisions that um, will hopefully prove to be beneficial to the U.S. team. But um, we'll move over to the Europeans too. I want to talk about their their captains. Mm-hmm. I think they made some very interesting decisions as well. I think you could argue in some ways theirs were maybe more controversial than the U.S. picks. Um, which is, it's, it's rare to see consternation over the picks on both sides. Normally, it's one team like, oh, what are we going to do? You know, like this time it's very much both. There are a couple of picks on the European team that I think people were surprised about, and um, if you are on Twitter at all, people are very mad about. Um, like Caleb mentioned, the auto qualifiers. So you got Rory, you got John Rahm, you got big shot Bob McIntyre of Scotland. I'm excited to see him play in the Ryder Cup. Uh, Victor Hovland, Tyrrell Hatton, and Matt Fitzpatrick. The captain's picks, some of them pretty easy. Tommy Fleetwood, he's played great this year. Surprised he didn't automatically qualify. He's probably pretty close, if not. Um, Sepp Straka, who has had a great year on the PGA Tour of Austria. Shane Lowry, who some people are kind of earmarking as one of the more controversial picks. Um, he did not have a very good year uh, from a statistical perspective. Um, I think his pick was often a lot more about passion and his you know, ability to fit in the team room and to pair with any guys because he has not played well this year. So he's a pick that, you know, uh, for the players that just missed out, I could, uh, I, I could see why they'd be disappointed in that one a little bit. But I understand from a team room perspective why they would pick Shane Lowry. Justin Rose had a great year, good Ryder Cup experience. These last two picks are kind of, 
an effort, I think, to make the European team younger, uh, to make the European team, you know, go a different direction as far as playing style. And these are the ones that I'm probably most excited to see how they actually play. So we've got Ludwig Aberg, uh, who literally was playing college golf as of May of 2023, which is unreal. And he's in the Ryder Cup. He's never played a major championship and he's in the Ryder Cup. And uh, Nikolai Hoygaard, who is 21 years old uh, from Denmark, and he and his twin brother Rasmus have won multiple times in the DP World Tour, um, you know, from the ages of kind of 19 to 21, which is very, very impressive. Um, he was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, I was not necessarily expecting him to be picked, but I'm glad from a European perspective they picked him. I'm very excited to see how he actually plays. So I think he's got a lot of game. Um, the players just missed out. Adrian Moronk. Uh, tough for Adrian Moronk. Tough for Adrian Moronk. Who, who won on this same course. He he won the Italian Open at Marco Simone this year um, and has won three or four DP World Tour events in the past, like, you know, 17 months or something like that. Like, he's had, had a fantastic run, won at least three times. Um, and I think he was kind of the big snub on the European side. But I do... I heard someone else say this, and I think I agree with the assessment that Adrian Morong probably would have been a one-time Ryder Cup participant, or maybe a two-time Ryder Cup participant that doesn't do a lot. I think think like a like a Bern Wiesberger, for example, right? Um, whereas I see Nikolai Hogard as a 21-year-old, Morong's in his 30s, right? As a 21-year-old, I think there's so much potential for Hogard and potentially his twin brother to be a part of these teams going forward for the next 10, 15, 20 years. That you know, it might look super silly in 10 years or five years had they not taken him in this Ryder Cup, you know? So even if he doesn't play well, I don't necessarily think it's a bad pick. I think it's an investment in the future, which Europe held off on doing for a long time and probably rolled their old guys out one Ryder Cup too many when they got, you know, beat by 10 points by the U.S. last time out with, you know, the Lee Westwoods and the Ian Poulters and the Sergio Garcias of the world. So, yeah, that didn't go very well for him. No, no, certainly not. Um, either way, like, like we mentioned, Caleb, just looking at these teams, I'm excited to see which players play together i'm excited to see again i think the, the skill sets match up in a way that we haven't seen happen in a long time in the Ryder cup um so i'm very excited to see how things play out i think it'll be a close cup um you know I, i'm curious we've got a couple minutes left here would love to ask your predictions on a winning score who you think is going to win this Ryder cup and, and and why i think the u.s will do it i i hope that it's close we haven't had a close Ryder cup in a long time um so i hope there's there's drama on Sunday. Um, there's 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 always a chance for fake drama on Sunday. You know, at the President's Cup, there's always that, you know, one minute where it's like, well, if if ABC and XYZ happen, the international team has a 50% chance of winning. Um, <clears throat> so I hope there's actually, you know, legitimate drama coming down to the end on, on Sunday. Um, I think golf fans are, are in for a treat. I think it should be that the U S has obviously the more talented team more. Um, it's almost always the case though. It's almost always the case, but I think more so than it has, has been in the past. Um, and they, and they finally have a, a, a group that has cohesion, um, which, which adds, adds to that, that talent. Um, but going, going over to Europe is hard. It's, it's a different, it's a completely different thing than, than winning here in the U S um, I'm really interested to see what they do with the course. I, ho I hope that it, that it turns out to be an interesting setup and not just a, a bombing couch like we're like we're worried it will be. But I think for as far as a winning score, I'll go 15 and a half, 12 and a half. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, you know, 
I'm also interested in the course kill, like you said. Uh, I watched No Laying Up's video, their, their film room video. They they went to go play Marco Simone. It looks really hard. <laughs> like I, you know, and they're good players, right? I, I came away shocked at how poorly it went for them, um, and just you know, definitely surprised surprised by that. So curious to see what the course setup is, especially if they're trying to create this long iron contest. I, I wonder if that means drivers taking out of hands for players, but that seems. It seems antithetical to some of European strengths, thinking like a Ram and a Rory and a Aberg, who are fantastic drivers of the ball. Like I don't know if you want to take driver out of their hands. So yeah. there's some things to think about there. So again, I think to me the course is probably the thing I'm most most curious to see uh, play out. But as far as the Ryder Cup, I I, I think I, as I think Europe is going to win uh, as badly as I want the U.S. to win and break this 30 year overseas Ryder Cup drought. I'll just claim that and say that I truly like this is one of the few Ryder Cups where I truly think anything can happen and nothing would surprise me. I had a very good feeling the U.S. would win the last Ryder Cup and I would have been shocked if Europe won and that was totally correct, right? Same thing in 2018. Like I really didn't feel good about the U.S. chances at the Golf National and they got smacked. This is a Ryder Cup where I, I truly don't know who is going to win. I don't have a strong sense of, you know, anything being more likely than another thing. So I'm not going to be surprised regardless for whatever reason, I just feel like, you know, Europe's done a good job of investing in the future in this Ryder Cup. I think they've got a good group of guys, and I think their guys are, frankly, in better form than a lot of the U.S. players are. And again, form doesn't always matter in the Ryder Cup, um, but as a baseline for your whole team, you want some guys that are playing well. And I think we've seen European players play very, very well in recent weeks, and we've seen the young guys play well in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, a lot of the guys that were on the record-breaking U.S. winning team at Whistling Straits have not played in a way Ryder Cup. Patrick yep. Cantlay and Andrew Shuffley have not played in a way Ryder Cup, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the U.S. hasn't played in a way Ryder Cup since 2018, you know, yeah. longer period of time because yeah. of COVID. So I think the transition over to Europe is a difficult one. I hope the U.S. does it, but I've got a feeling that Europe's going to win. I think it will be be very, very close, though. I think it's going to be like Europe's going to win with 14 and a half points. It's going to be coming down to the wire, you know, so that's my prediction. Awesome. Well, thanks, Drew. Uh, this has been a, a great, great podcast, great, uh, great event. And uh, I was excited to do it and do it in person with you. Oh, it's been tons of fun doing it in person. Look, Kill, all I'm asking for is, you know, we got the Solheim Cup on right now. I want this kind of tight match in the Ryder Cup that we're seeing the Solheim Cup. This has been tons of fun to watch. Um, so if you guys haven't checked that out, man, Solheim Cup is fun to watch. But uh, to have that and the Ryder Cup in back-to-back weeks, what, what, what an awesome two weeks stretch. What a way to kick off fall, right? Absolutely. Zero complaints there, but... Uh, Caleb, it's been great doing it. Good doing it in person. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll, we'll see you next time.